Our scripture reading this morning is two short passages from Luke chapter 7. I'll be reading Luke, 30, Luke 7, 36 through 39, and then skipping ahead to Luke 4, to 4, verses 44 through 47. Now, at first, this might not seem like a story about neighboring, but the way Jesus dignifies this woman and how he honors her awkward gesture of kindness beautifully demonstrates one last crucial skill Jesus wants to teach us in our summer course on the honor of neighboring. Now, listen for God's word to you. Luke 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited them saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And now skipping ahead to verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to, into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little, loves little. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Michael. All right. Two stories tied together by their sheer awkwardness and also by feet. The first one involves me answering the front door in the middle of the night. I can even get more specific than that. It was 12.01 on New Year's Day, 1993, and the front door that I opened was the front door of our flat in Edinburgh, Scotland. Some of you know that right after we attended seminary, Debbie and I had the opportunity to serve a Church of Scotland as co-youth directors for a year under a, uh, a ministry fellowship that Princeton Seminary had. And so along with our two-year-old daughter, the 28-year-old version happens to be home this weekend and is sitting right there, we spent a little, a little less than a year living in Edinburgh, Scotland, and serving a wonderful congregation, the Mayfield Congregation. We'd been there about three or four months at this point, and it was New Year's Eve, and Debbie had gone to bed, and I must have been up either watching the BBC to see how they do New Year's Eve in Great Britain, or maybe reading, or something like that, and there was this knock on the door. Well, that's weird. So I opened it, and standing there was David Booth, now, David Booth was the father of two of the kids in our youth group, and in those three or four months, I'd, I'd gotten to know him, I'd gotten to know their family, they'd been kind to us, but I certainly didn't know him well enough to expect him at my front door at 12.01 in the morning. 
And to make things even a little more strange, he had this open cardboard box with him that he was holding out to me. And I looked in it, and there were four peculiar kind of random objects in there. There was a lump of what I later learned was coal. I didn't really know what coal looked like, but there was coal. There was a tin of shortbread. There was a shaker of salt. And there was a bottle of single malt with two tumblers. And I remember looking at David Booth, and I think in my memory it was like 30 seconds of me just like, what's going on here? What is this? Did I drift off? And is this just a weird dream? Or what is going on? And I just kind of stared there, not quite sure what to do. And David realized that he was going to have to rescue me out of my awkwardness. And I wish I could do the accent. I practiced it the last few days. I just can't do it. I'm not going to try. So David said, um... I tell you what, invite me in and I'll explain everything. And that kind of shook me out of that really awkward moment. And so I invited him in. And over the next few minutes, I learned a bit of cross-cultural information about Scotland. Well, I mean, I already knew that they had a different name for New Year's Day. They called it Hogmanay. And I even knew that it was a bigger deal for them than Christmas because, you know what, the Presbyterians had forbidden Christmas for about three centuries, but they had just brought it back. But Hogmanay had become the, uh, the bigger deal in, uh, in Scotland. So I knew that stuff. What I did not know was their cultural folk tradition of first footing. First footing. And he had to explain this to me. The folk tradition, and there's a little bit of paganism wrapped up in this thing, but the folk tradition in Scotland, if it just so happens that the first person to cross your threshold in the new year happens to be either a dark-haired or a dark-complected male. It's got to be that. And if that male happens to bring these four traditional items, these four traditional symbols of abundance and of blessing, then you are assured of blessing in the new year. That's what first footing is, and he wanted to assure that we were first footed well for the new year. And so once I knew what this was all about, I realized that David Booth had gone to a whole lot of trouble to pull off this beautiful gesture of welcome for the Yankees who were there serving his church, this beautiful gesture of welcome and of blessing, until... I knew that, however. It was just awkward. <laughs> my hunch, though, is that my first footing was nowhere near as awkward as this other footing. Get the pun? See what I'm doing here? This other footing that Luke describes in his seventh chapter. It's a scene that I'm calling, instead of first footing, a faux pas footing. Because yes, while this woman, like David Booth on Hogmanay, set out that evening intending a thoughtful gesture of blessing and kindness, the difference is that the particular gesture that she happened to choose that night, wiping Jesus' feet with her tears and with her perfume and with her hair, the gesture crossed over that line between dignified and awkward, and it just kept going. At the center of both of these stories I'm telling this morning is a moment 
of painfully awkward silence. But the awkwardness of Luke's scene isn't due to a clueless American. It's due to this woman's rather inept judgment and sense of decency. And while this woman isn't literally Jesus' next-door neighbor, the way that Jesus treats her right there in the midst of all this painful awkwardness that she has stumbled into is something that I'm convinced Jesus wants to teach us also. And in fact, I think it's, we're going to accept it here as Jesus' last lesson in this summer-long seminar that Jesus has been holding with us on the art of neighboring. Okay, like in all the best storytelling There's a whole lot that Luke leaves us to fill in in this story, to fill in about this unnamed woman and how she ends up crying at Jesus' feet that night. I mean, the tears alone kind of cry out for some kind of backstory. What is going on? What's the story with this woman? But Luke does not oblige us. As a narrator, he simply identifies her as a sinner. And almost certainly that means that she is a prostitute. But oh, the the heartache and the broken dreams that surely stand behind that word. Years of desperation and survival and learning to cope on the margins of society. Certainly not a whole lot of opportunity to learn genteel manners, to become refined or polished. But what she lacks in refinement, she makes up in courage. Audaciously and unselfconsciously walking into that Pharisee's fine dining room, into a world where she must have known she was neither welcome nor she did not belong there. She walks into the home of Simon the Pharisee. Now, you got to understand, Simon, it's confusing because Simon is also a disciple Familiar name, common name back then. This is Simon the Pharisee. And as she walks in, in her hands, she is carrying the only gift that she could scrounge up from what she had on hand, from the little that she owned. i got to clarify something else here because there's a very similar story in the other three Gospels and it happens at the end of Jesus' life, right before his crucifixion. And another woman comes in and pours a a jar of nard, of ointment, that is priceless, that is incredibly expensive to anoint him for his death and for his burial. This is a different story. This is just department store perfume that she brings. And as she carries it into that room, what is it about Jesus that unleashes those tears? What is it about her story? What is going on inside her? Had she heard of Jesus? Had she seen him somewhere earlier at some other place? Or had she merely overheard that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Luke doesn't tell us. And I, I love this painting that I found. It's by Filipino artist Wayne Forte. But as much as I love it, I suspect that it renders this moment, it renders this woman's gesture a bit less awkward than it even likely was. For one thing, it seems to imagine Jesus sitting on a chair having his feet washed. That's how we'd think of it. He's at a dinner after all. He must be sitting in a chair. Not in the first century. 
In the first century, at a formal dinner like this, people reclined. That means you kind of laid on your side, you laid on one shoulder, there was a pillow underneath you, and your feet was near, were near the table, or no, your head was near the table so you could eat, and your feet were kind of extended out behind you. So I think that even makes this a more awkward image, a more awkward scene to imagine. Jesus is reclining there at this dinner, and this prostitute dares to come up behind him, kind of get down on her knees behind him, and tears flowing begins to tenderly wipe his outstretched feet. If this woman seems unselfconscious, that's not the case for Jesus' host, Simon the Pharisee. Simon's embarrassed. Simon is embarrassed that this awkward scene is playing out at his home, at his party. He is embarrassed on Jesus' behalf. He's embarrassed that Jesus has ended up in this uncomfortable position. And yes, he is irritated that Jesus allows this tasteless charade to play itself out. And he mutters as much under his breath. And I'm not sure that you're really going to understand this story if you don't stop right here and acknowledge that Simon the Pharisee is right. What he's witnessing there at his table in his home is in fact inappropriate. In that culture, women don't touch men, especially unmarried women don't touch men that aren't their husbands much less women who were ritually unclean, as doubtless this woman was. Women also don't let their hair down in public. What this woman is doing, even if it's unintentional, is to sully Jesus' dignity, to denigrate his social position, to treat him like an equal, which he isn't, to treat him like her intimate, which he isn't. If this woman set out to honor Jesus, she's actually done exactly the opposite. It is a gesture that is inept, that is insensitive, that is thoughtless, that is scandalous. It's a gesture that has put Jesus in an entirely awkward position. And Simon sees all of this play out before his eyes like it's a bad dream. And if nothing else, Simon is mystified why Jesus doesn't seem to share his disgust. What more evidence does anyone need, he mutters to himself, that Jesus is obviously not quite as pure and holy as he's been claiming the last few weeks. It is at this moment in the story that Jesus looking at the woman but addressing Simon the Pharisee asks one simple single question. It's just five words, but they thoroughly and utterly redefine what holiness actually means. Do you see this woman? At first... If you're reading quickly, they seem like they're just throwaway words. It seems like it's just a transition to whatever's next. But then it hits you. This question is really the point of the whole episode. Do you see this woman? Simon doesn't, but Jesus does. And then Jesus shows 
every scandalized, offended person in that room watching what it looks like to actually see a person. It means that when that person is hanging in that vulnerable moment of having taken the risk of offering a heartfelt gift, of wondering whether it's going to be accepted or rejected, in that moment there are rules that simply go out the window. Which is why as awkward, as inappropriate, even as indecent as this woman's gesture is, Jesus allows her to continue. He receives the gift. He accepts the gift. He does not shame her. In fact, not only that, Jesus praises her, and he praises her at Simon's expense, which gets him really irritated. What Jesus does in that moment is to turn this woman from a category, sinner, prostitute, slut, into a human being, into a beloved child of God doing the best she can, a woman who has offered a gift that for all of its inappropriateness is also tender and it's beautiful, it is from the heart. Do you see this woman? Simon doesn't. Jesus does. And in that moment, What it means for Jesus to see her, to value her, to honor her, is to receive. It is to accept this gift that she so vulnerably offers to him. To allow what would normally be a one-way relationship of him being the powerful one and her not, to allow that to become instead a relationship of authentic mutuality. So, throughout this summer, these last 11 weeks, we've been asking Jesus to teach us the art of neighboring. And week by week, we've talked about all sorts of ways that we might bless the lives of the neighbors. We put a cookie recipe in the bulletin early on this summer. We talked about mowing their lawn, about inviting them over for meals. And obviously, all of these things are good. All of them are beautiful. Giving, blessing is what Jesus wants us to be doing. But, here's the caveat. Because we're human, there is this insidious tendency in each one of us, this tendency to allow even something good, like serving our neighbor, like blessing their lives, to become distorted if we're not careful, to get twisted and misshapen until it becomes its own opposite. I'm asking, what happens if, whether this is with one neighbor or maybe with all of your neighbors, you keep turning up the pace and the frequency and the volume of your neighboring? There will come a point at which, instead of neighboring, You have crossed into what I would call neighborizing. (laughs) And if that sounds sort of like traumatizing or patronizing, that's kind of what I mean. Neighborizing is neighboring on steroids. And it is, as Nathan said a moment ago, it's a temptation for us Christians 
to allow your generosity to go into overdrive, to become so good at neighboring that you begin to suffocate that other person because you're always giving and you're never receiving. It's as if there is a giant open valve between your home and that neighbor's home that allows all of your generous acts to flow freely. All of those beautiful things you're doing all the time for all those people. But then they suggest doing something for you and that valve slams shut. The giving and the serving only flow one way. That's what I mean by neighborizing. The neighbor attempts to neighbor back, and that ball check valve just shuts off. Nope, I'm the one who neighbors on this block. <laughs> and you know, when our neighboring veers over that line into neighborizing, I think that Jesus asks us the same uncomfortable question that he asked Simon the Pharisee that evening. Do you really see that neighbor? Because if you never allow them to do something for you, to serve you, to invite you over for dinner, to mow your lawn, to take out your trash, then you don't really see them. Or at least you don't see them as equals. You don't see them as having the same dignity that you do. What that means is that neighborizing, if we're honest, is actually powered by pride, not generosity. It's powered by wanting to have power, to have people need you, to feel superior. Real neighboring is something altogether different. True mutuality is only possible if what's flowing out of us is the real deal, if it's authentic generosity and authentic love both of which were abundantly evident in this room seven days ago, last Sunday morning at about this time. And if you weren't here, that's when we had an opportunity for everyone to report back on the neighboring experiences that you all have had this summer. I've got to say, that was one of the high points of my ministry, to hear what was going on in all of these neighborhoods that this congregation represents a high point because I'm convinced that simple neighboring, blessing the lives of the folks that God puts us next to in our neighborhoods is probably the most important thing we do as followers of Jesus. And this is the final Sunday of our summer neighboring series. My prayer, though, is that for members of North Creek Presbyterian Church, authentic neighboring powered by God's love is just beginning and that in the coming weeks and months and even years you are going to continue to let Jesus build bridges of friendship bridges of neighboring with all eight of those households that are closest to your own as you do remember this one last thing that is going to keep your neighboring fresh and alive if as we have claimed all summer, to neighbor is a verb, then grammatically the recipient of that action must be the neighboree. Does that make sense? There's the neighbor and there's the neighboree. As you continue to ask Jesus to teach you the art of neighboring, 
remember that it always also includes the art of neighboring. <laughs> so, quick aside, this was actually the title of the sermon. It was supposed to be on the bulletin cover, and Lexi in the office saw what I gave her, just assumed it was a typo, and she <laughs> corrected it back, which is her job, and she's really good at it. No, this is the art of neighboring of being neighbored by those folks God plants near you. Because when we do, when we allow them to neighbor us, we begin to see them as God sees them, as his beloved child in whose life he is already at work. Amen.